Scott has already read to you the passage that we're looking at from the book of Ezra, chapter 4, but I invite you to turn there with me all the same. Uh, regarding today's sermon and the passage, I'd actually planned on doing this text at this time. Uh, it was about eight months ago, uh, and I've entitled it, If You Want to See Renewal? Well, if that's the case, you better expect opposition. And... Um, in the week, I had kind of come up with an introduction as to how I was going to open this up, and then yesterday happened, and we saw the devastation that's going on across the globe in Israel when Hamas launched their rockets repeatedly and going into that city, and yet we are just reminded one more time, aren't we, that uh, when it comes to God's people, the nation of Israel, even though at this time in their faith they live as an apostate nation, they will always have that place in God's heart. And his plans with them have not terminated. They're going to continue. But as we see this, we're just reminded yet again, our adversary, the devil, does seek to destroy that nation. And he hates them. And so we have the terrible images in our minds from what we saw from the news. And we continue to pray, particularly for those people who are the innocent victims. And I say that on both sides. War always brings devastation to so many people who are innocent. But we continue to pray, too, for peace and peace in Jerusalem. But today what I'm going to do is we're going to look at another time in which they experienced a conflict, a time when an adversary came against them. And we're not doing this so that we can make some sort of political statement in light of what has recently happened. That's not the point at all. As much as we want to see what it is that God has for us from his word that speaks to us today. What is timeless about the things that Israel went through before? And the Bible speaks to us repeatedly and reminds us that we do have an adversary. His name is the Satan or the devil, Satan. He's the accuser. And the Bible is very deliberate in showing us his playbook. What are his tactics? Revealing the ways in which he chooses to operate against us. You know, when I, was, uh, when I went in the Navy, my very first squadron that I was a part of, we were called the Adversary Squadron. And our goal was to be the enemy against our own troops whenever they came through and provide the exercises and giving them uh, Russian tactics, at least it was Soviet tactics at the time. But we had this exercise one time in which we were working to help train another nation. I won't say which one it was, but it was in the Middle East somewhere. And so we're working with these pilots to train them, and there was this one Marine F-18 pilot that I was dealing with, and we were just talking about how the training was going. And he highlighted to me, he says, yeah, I, I, I do my best to help them and to teach them, but I don't teach them everything because I never am quite sure when their government is going to make that person my adversary one day. And I'm going to keep a few tricks up my sleeve so that I don't get taken down by the very person that I've trained. Well, God does know our adversary, and he does tell us the things and the tactics that he will do, as well as what's effective in combating him. And what should we do, and what should we expect? And while the devil cannot have, and he will not have, an ultimate victory, amen? We have to remember that. He does not have an ultimate victory, but he is more than content to settle for the lesser things in the meantime. And he's aggressive. If he can discourage your soul, he will do it. If he can disqualify you in certain aspects of ministry due to sin, he will bring that to you. Uh, if he wants to somehow delay you in your sanctification, he's more than content to go down that path. And certainly any distortion he can bring to the gospel, as well as encourage some people to desert in the faith, he is, he is more than happy to help them with 
and to attack them. And in Ezra's day, he did the same thing. Nothing is new under the sun. Now, let's remember something for the Jew, that for the Jew, in order to live in the land of Israel, I mean, that was a big deal to them. God came to them and said, I've chosen you. You're my nation, and I'm going to manifest myself through you, and here's what I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you land, particularly that land. I'm going to give you descendants, and we understand later in the New Testament that it's particularly a descendant, Jesus Christ, that's going to be the culmination of that. He says, I'm going to make you a blessing in the world, and again, that would ultimately be through Jesus Christ. And so, a big part of that blessing is them seeing th- themselves going back into the land from which they were deported. And coming home was going to be a sure sign God hasn't forget- forgotten us. Right? We've sinned against him, but he hasn't given up on us. And he does want to bring us back into this land and care for us. And so in coming back, they were to come back, but not just any way they wanted. They were to come back with a purity of worship with a desire to say, God, if, if we know how you want to be worshipped based on what you revealed to us, we want to be faithful to that. We want to accomplish that. And God had prescribed how they would do that. And it was particularly at that time through the tabernacle or the temple in the land. So it was imperative that they not only go back into the land, but they build that temple and open up the gate by which they could then enter back into fellowship with God through sacrifices and recognizing his holiness and completely submitting unto him and that kind of a fellowship, and to love him. And so the renewal effort in that time began with the two tribes in particular, Judah and Benjamin, who, who were apportioned lands, particularly in the south of Israel. And they were to go back. Now, I've got a little map here to sort of help us out. And uh, it may be hard to see, but if you've got over here, you've got Babylon, and it's a follow the river, because that's how you traveled in that day. You had to follow the water source. They go all the way to the north, and then they work their way back down into the south, into Jerusalem. Now, what I want to do is take the next map and blow up a little bit of what you see in the red square here regarding Jerusalem. So there is the uh, Dead Sea, or as the Bible calls it, the Salt Sea. And here in the purple is where the uh, people of Israel came back and they began to populate the land. So they're living within this land, and they're excited about the prospects of what can happen. But there's a problem. And the problem was an opposition was coming their way. And you see it in Ezra 4, verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we've been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. Now, there's a term for the people that we're talking about here that were in the north there. And you've got it on this map right here. I've got it highlighted. The term is a Samaritan. They were descendants of various people groups over the years. And it included people that had a Jewish heritage, a Jewish lineage. And so when the northern Israel had been conquered in 722 B.C., what Ezra Haddon did was he came in at the time and he took many, not all, but many of the Jews and he deported them back into his land. But then, conversely, he brought his people into the land and he imported them. With the idea being, we have these people who are Jews and we have these people who are not. And you get people together long enough, what happens? They get to looking at one another, they get to liking one another, and before long they get to marrying one another. And that's part of his strategy. As a result, you not only have a Jewish race, now you have a mixed race. Now that in and of itself, I don't know that it's so big of a problem, but something else is going to happen with this, and that's religions. 
this people come in with one religion and faith, and these people come in with something different, and when you mix the two, now you get a sort of a syncretism that begins to happen. And this is explained to us in 2 Kings 17, verse 33, where it says about these people, they feared the Lord, and here's the key word, and, and they served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. So this is the problem that the Jews would have with the Samaritans. They worship God plus. They added on to this. We, we're going to obey God in this area, but we've got these other gods too that we're going to pay homage to. So they're enemies, not because they don't worship Yahweh, which is the formal name of God, but because they don't only worship Yahweh. And for Zerubbabel, he knows if we import this kind of help into this situation, we're importing syncretism. It's going to be a problem. And so it'd be like me saying, you know, for our worship team, Tom's going to take the summer off. But y'all be excited because we have a link and we have got the pop singer Rihanna. And she's going to come in here and she's going to lead worship for us. And it'll be great. We'll get all these people from the community and they'll come out and won't, you, won't it be wonderful? Everybody say no. <laughs> she can sing amazing, amazing talent. But what is the problem with that? Well, I don't know what Rihanna's faith is, and even if she grew up in a church, we don't see evidence of it today, and we certainly don't see a lifestyle consistent with it today. We say that's going to be a problem for us, and that's exactly what Zerubbabel is facing here. Now, let me get super theological with you, all right? Okay, everybody take a step back, get ready, get ready. Big theological word coming up, and this theological word really defines who you are as a believer, and who you worship. And this theological word will get you into more trouble than any other one that I can think of. And that theological term is the word only. When I say only, only is used to show that something is limited to, not more than, or is not anything other than, the people, the things, the amount, or the activity stated. And in a pluralistic society, the word only is not usually appreciated. And in verse 3, that the fact that the Jew would only worship God meant that only exclusive worshipers of God would build this temple. Verse 3, Zerubbabel and Yeshua said to them, you have nothing in common with us building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. But, but it's a rumble. Wait, we worship the same God. Come on. No, no, you don't. The minute you worship God and, but you don't worship God only, you have nothing to do with us. That's the break. And that is a precedence not established by these Jewish leaders. That is a precedence established by God himself. You all remember a thing called the Ten Commandments. And you remember the first two commandments and how they go. I will have no other gods before me. And you will not have any idols before me. God is very exclusive in that. And so, you know, when it comes to a church, are there issues that we can sort of give and take on? Everybody say, yeah. Yeah, of course there are. There's a lot of things that work like that. You know, how are we going to do an offering? There's no exclusive one way that we can do that. How will we do life groups? There's nothing exclusive in that. Uh, what style of worship are we going to incorporate? You know, that we have latitude. We've got room to maneuver on this. But when God makes a statement, and he makes it very binary, saying it is this and only this, then we have to go with what he said. 
And to be very candid, every single one of us gets this. Give you a way of example. Men, let's just say tonight you go home and you look at your wife and you say, sweetheart, I love you and everything that I have is yours. But, you know, I think I would also like for us to be able to start seeing some other people, me in particular. And so I still love you, you know, but if I can just take Thursdays, only Thursdays, and I'm going to devote them over here to this person. Is your wife going to be okay with that? Hide the guns before you make that statement because she's going to use those things against you. No, no, that is not okay. Because there are some things we know that are meant to be exclusive. And the worship of God certainly fits in this category. Is there more than one way to God? No. It was Jesus who said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Very exclusive. I can go on. Some of the other cultural issues, are there more than, uh, is there more than two genders? God said, no, God made them male and female. He said, this is it. No more. Can you worship God consistently while simultaneously refusing to repent of a known sin? No. No, you cannot. You cannot cohabit with sin. He will not let you domesticate it. He's very exclusive on that. He says, no, when it comes to sin, we get that out. You come to me without that, and you bring repentance when you do bring it in. But we're not going to continue to abide with it. But ladies and gentlemen, when you and I begin to use this word only, let me tell you what you can expect. Hostility. It's going to be a problem from those who don't want to hear it. You're going to find people that come to you and they have this very pleasant demeanor, and then maybe they even extend an invitation to you. That something, let's have this real ecumenical moment, and we're all going to get together, and this is going to be great. But when they worship a different God, we have to say, no, no, we're not going to be in that with you. Jesus said false prophets will come in sheep's clothing inwardly as ravenous wolves. There will be people who will proclaim this is good and this is right. It doesn't have to be only, but a true test to find out if they do in fact, in fact worship the only true God. Here's just a few questions. Do they deny the sufficiency of scripture? That's going to be a problem if they do. Do they take offense that it isn't just the sincere who can come to faith? That's a big deal now. You know? But if someone's sincere, surely God will receive them. He says, no, he receives them on his terms. Do they take offense over the truth that hell exists? Do they take offense of the resurrection, of the triune nature of the living God? Or today, we can even say a biblical view of the family and God's created order. Where do they stand on these things? And this is where if you start to say only, these nice smiling faces all of a sudden turn into a scowl. And they take on a frown. And sometimes they can get kind of loud in their voice. And this is nothing new. You'll remember in the book of Daniel, you got those three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar builds this idol, and he wants everybody to bow, and they won't do it. And he calls them into the carpet personally. He says, guys... You need to bow. And they're polite about it, and they say, oh, sorry, but no, we cannot do that. We can only worship the one true God. And Daniel 3.19 says, he was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered. You can see it. You see the imagery. The, the happiness goes to a scowl. Now, as Christians, as believers, I mean, we're all in agreement. We're not trying to be as offensive as we possibly can. It's the last thing we want to do. We want to be true to Jesus Christ, though. And at times, no matter how nice you are, doing that 
is going to make you offensive. I mean, the gospel in its very nature is offensive because it says you're a sinner, and people don't like to hear that. They had the same problem in their day. Do we want to be generous in our orthodoxy? You bet we do. As generous as the Bible will allow us. But we're going to refuse any union that will blind people to God's truth and lead those people unto lies. That's not loving. We can't go there. And Zerubbabel took this stand, and friendly faces became scowls really fast. Verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, frightened them from building, hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. In other words, we did this for 50 years. 50 years this continues on. And yesterday's news events show us they're still continuing on. And Ezra then backs out of the immediate context that we've got here. And he looks at this bigger swath of history. And so when you get to verses 6 all the way to 23, if you've got a pencil, you might just put a little bracket next to that. Because you've got to remember, this is taken out of a different time frame. Verse 6, he goes on, he says, Now in the reign of Ahasuerus, so this is a later time period, maybe about 60 years after the events of verses 1 through 5, he says that there were some events surrounding the building of the temple at that time. And some people wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And so it was a type of a form of slander against them. And then in verse 7, there's another incident. Perhaps about 20 to 60 years after the events of verses 1 through 5. No details are given about that event. Just that somehow there was this political maneuver to get Israel in trouble. And so his bouncing between these different eras of opposition, I think we, we're seeing this in the news right now when we look at the opposition against Israel. You know, a bunch of you can look and say, you know, this happened once back when uh, Nixon was president, back in 1973. And then, you know what, it happened again when uh, George W. Bush was president, back in 2006. And now we can say, now it's happening when Biden is president. And that's essentially what he's doing. He's anchoring it to the time period of a ruler to say this has continued to happen. And he's showing us that there is a hatred others have for anybody who is going to be aligned with the person and the word and the truth of God. Whether it's the temple in their day, whether it's the walls, whether it's the city of Jerusalem, the faces of the people might change over time and throughout history. But behind them is the same adversary. It's Satan who deceives and who crafts opposition. And Ezra is bringing out this timeless truth that if you're going to align with the person and the work of God, expect opposition. Don't be surprised by it. Expect it. In fact, Jesus put it like this. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. We just have to remember, whenever we are going to be about the person and the work of God, we've got to expect opposition. Sometimes it's overtly. Sometimes it'll be covertly. But expect it to come. Sometimes it's going to come from your family. For some of you, it'll come from your friends. For others, it's going to come in your good times. And in others, it'll be coming at you in your bad and your hard times. Satan is relentless, and he will be until his final defeat. So it shouldn't catch us by surprise. It doesn't mean God's not on his throne. But you have to remember, Satan's, Satan's objective is singular. Oppose God. 
And if you're going to oppose God, then you necessarily are going to oppose God's people. And that's exactly what he does. And so by you being a servant of God, I got news for you. You now got a target that is on your chest. And as a result, it comes with this new alignment that you have with Christ. The minute you were birthed into his family, this target shows up. You know, I had this friend who was a uh, Navy commander, and he had, a, he had a very good friend who was one of these old Vietnam vets. And this guy was a commander of a little outfit over there in Vietnam, and they're in the, they're in the bush, they're in the, the thick of it. And so whenever he got new recruits that came in, he sat them down, and he had a little five-step process of how to survive in Vietnam or how best to survive in Vietnam. I don't know what the five are, but I always knew what the first one was. The first rule, if you're going to survive, is that God would look at his men and he would say, you are here. You're here. You need to accept it. You need to quit complaining of how you got here. You need to quit whining about your mama. You need to quit whining about these other issues. And instead, you've got to just embrace the fact that you are now here. And so if you're going to do that, it, it gives you a different mentality. It prepares you. For when attacks come, you're not living in a state of denial. Well, in verses 8 through 23, you start to get this other specific incident that happened. And uh, here the entire written account has been written about and it's included. I'm not going to read it verse by verse. I'll just kind of give you a quick overarching summary. But the bottom line is there was this letter that had been submitted at the time. And it looks like this was before Nehemiah came and started to build the walls. So it's between Ezra and and Nehemiah. And the Jews decided to rebuild their walls. And so they just got about the work and started doing it. They were operating under that old mantra, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to beg for permission. And so as they got going, you had a group of people, and you see them listed there in verse 8, Rahum and Shimsai the scribe, who wrote to Artaxerxes what it was that they were seeing. And look how they did it. You can put a little annotation in the margin of your Bibles to kind of see how this, um, how this played out what Satan's tactics were. After going through the formalities there in verses 8 through 11, they then chose to address the problem, telling Artaxerxes some information because they wanted to perk his ears and get him to act. And it's in verse 13, they say, look, if this city rebuilds its walls, then they are going to defy you, and they're not going to pay their tribute, and they're not going to pay their tolls and their taxes. In other words, if they get this done, King, it's going to cost you financially. Now, that'll get the ears of a king. And in verse 14, they make the comment, hey, king, just want to let you know, we're just telling you because, you know, we're your friends. We're your buddies. We're looking out for the kingdom. We're here for you. So they're kind of siding themselves with him politically. And in verses 15 and 16, they call on Artaxerxes. They say, now, here's what you need to do. Go look it up on Google, or at least the Google of the day, which was the archives. And so, sure enough, he would go and call those up. And by highlighting just a few cases in which this happened, what they've done is a broad brush sweep to make it a caricature of the entire nation. And so here's where this was slanderous. It wasn't a true representation of the nation. It's just saying, remember this incident, remember this, remember this, and now we're going to put them all in the same bucket and slander them that way. Um, you know, when Karen and I lived in Pensacola, this is back in the early 90s, uh, I remember there was this one abortion clinic in which the abortion doctor came out and there was a religious guy who went out with a shotgun and he shot, killed, and murdered the abortion doctor. 
And the Christians immediately came out and said, that is not right. We do not support that. This is not good. Yes, we're against abortion. This is not the way to do it. But how do you think the media handled it? We all got painted in that bucket. See, they're all just like this guy right here. It was a form of slander. And so one man's actions resulted in all of us not being criticized fairly. And that's, that's the tool that happens. You are here. Expect it. Expect those kinds of things will occur. Well, sure enough, the king did go back to the records. He had his guy look, and he found a few incidences. And in verses 17 through 20, he says, and I'll just summarize, well, I'll be darned. You guys are right. That's exactly what's happened. And so some good instances apparently were left out. Remember that in this time frame, you've got a guy named Mordecai, who actually, in the book of Esther, we find he stands up, and he helps the king, saves the king's life, and it gets put in the archives because the king winds up finding it later. It's a big part of the story of the book of Esther. But they're not highlighted here. And again, that's how Satan works. Deceit, misrepresentation, false accusations, and lies. Ladies and gentlemen, don't be surprised. Don't go into shock and wonder, how can this happen? This is a part of how he works. In fact, in the book of Acts, when Stephen was brought before the council, the Bible tells us, they also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not speak blas- or this man speaks blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. You are here. This is what will happen when you follow the Lord Jesus Christ in truth. These kinds of things will occur. And our reminder, if you want to see renewal, then one of the first things you got to do is go ahead and just expect the opposition. Expect it. And in many ways, That ought to encourage us a little bit. Because think about it. When you go to a battle where the bullets are flying, that's the front lines. Where there are no bullets, there's no you're not in the war. You're in someplace else. And so when we begin to see these kinds of things happening, we, to a degree, should be encouraged. Yeah, we can pray against it. But we should be encouraged that, my goodness, if we're in the battle, then we are a threat to the enemy. That's why we're going through this right now. Well, when they went through it, verse 21, the decree came out. You tell those guys, knock it off. They need to stop. And in verse 23, they did. And the work on the city walls was stopped. But again, all those verses, 6 through 23, is like this parentheses that Ezra puts in there. It's an interruption between 5 and 24. A broader look at how historically God's people who seek to worship him have consistently been opposed. And they're going to continue to be. And the principle, that's the principal takeaway. It's going to continue. And it's not until we get all the way down to verse 24 that we then come back to the immediate context of the building of the temple. Happening in verses 1 through 5. And now, that's also been called to a stop. It's got to terminate. And it sat there. Are you ready for this? For at least 16 years. 16 years. I want to invite you to do something. Enter into the story with me right now. All right? Let's call this year four after the building has stopped. And you're looking at the temple foundation, and you're thinking about God brought us back here, and we were doing all this great work, and these things were happening. And now, not only has it stopped, there's no promise that anything's going to change in the future. What was that all about? Don't you know that would be the temptation? Now, we have the advantage of knowing the rest of the story. We know that even though there was that break, and we can just dismiss 16 years, oh yeah, 16-year break, 
Not until you live in 16 years and you feel the break. And so in that time period, there's got to be a lot of folks disheartened. But people in asking that question, what was that all about? It's my reminder that we're challenged that whenever we face opposition, we got to take the long view. Sometimes God's work is going to be short-circuited in the short term. Don't forget that. Sometimes this is exactly what happens. And that is exactly why you and I have to take the long view that God is going to continue to do his work and he will eventually accomplish his purposes. This is why for the past several weeks, I've been having you go to Isaiah 46 and work with you to memorize verses 9 through 10 where it says, Remember the things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, you catch this, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That's the promise. God is going to see his work done. He's going to see it through. Even if in times, we're living, we're living in times where we're struggling with that. But God finishes what he starts. And can I just remind you, isn't that the key truth about the gospel as a whole? Jesus lived this life of perfect sinlessness and lived in the world and everyone had, had great and high hopes all up until that Friday in which he's brought before the Romans hung upon a cross, stabbed with a spear, killed, buried, and put in the tomb. I have often wondered, what would I have been doing? What would I have been thinking if I had been alive in that day on Saturday? Before the resurrection has happened, what would I have thought? I would have thought the same thing. What was all that for? It seems like the devil got an impressive victory. But he didn't because Sunday came. And when Sunday came, Jesus arose. And then while it took some time for people to get caught up on that truth, eventually they did, that Jesus was the victor. But you see what the lesson is for us. Same one Ezra encounters. And, you know, while we don't take Satan's opposition lightly, folks, we got to be careful. Don't overestimate what he can do either. Don't give him too much power. He is ultimately subject to whatever it is that God wants to accomplish. So because we know how things end, we can live in a confident hope. Amen? We can live in a confident hope even when times are rough or things are delayed or stressful or threatening. God will accomplish his purposes. I've been reading this book. It's excellent. Um, by Rosaria Butterfield called Five Lives of the Anti-Christian Culture. And I just want to read you something out of this. She begins by quoting uh, John Calvin. She writes, God's will is that Christ's kingdom should be encompassed with many enemies. His design being to keep us in a state of constant warfare. I don't think we like that. But that is true. Therefore, it becomes us to exercise patience and meekness and assured of God's aid boldly to consider the rage of the whole world as nothing. This is God's promise as well as his command to the faithful church. The rage of the whole world is nothing. That means that the mayhem, while it can hurt you, it can't alter God's good plan for you. God uses everything. He even uses sin sinlessly. Well, that'll blow your mind. But see also the cross. 
the greatest sin that ever occurred, and God used it to accomplish the greatest good that has ever been accomplished. And yet he could do it without sinning himself. She concludes by saying, the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace that weaves this life together is strong enough to hold you fast in grief and joy as you serve in the body of Christ, the church militant. I love that. Until the Lord returns and we become the church triumphant. We leave our grief and tears here for there are no tears where we are going. Christian, this is our moment. We must speak boldly to the world and we must live boldly for Jesus Christ. And as we do so, we'll face opposition. But this is why we're here. Jesus is going to use you in exactly such a time as this. Would you bow with me as the worship team comes up on the stage? And let me just ask you a quick question before we pray. And my question is this. When it comes to the Lord Jesus, do you know him or are you his enemy? Because you can only be one of the two. You can either be his friend and his servant or you can be his enemy. And if you're not, how would I become his friend and his servant? It's very simple. You come recognizing your sin, recognizing you can do nothing about it. And you give it unto him and allow him to take that from you, to die for that sin, and to then give you his righteousness that you then can walk in a new life and live in a new way. And that's exactly what he wants to do with you. And if, if you are an enemy of God, you don't have to be. You come in submission and in willingness to serve unto him.